is Jimmy Scroggins, and I'm the lead pastor of Family Church in South Florida. Welcome to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. On our podcast, we're committed to giving you scalable ideas that you can use with the resources you have right now at your church. So welcome to Church for the Rest of Us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. Leslie Bennett and I are high atop our gleaming office complex, the Family Church Headquarters, downtown West Palm Beach, also known as the little room on the third floor where we have some microphones and podcast equipment. And I'm really enjoying these conversations we're having with other pastors from different contexts about neighborhood church. I'm with you. I feel like we've already learned so many things and gotten some good insights about doing ministry in a way that we can implement with the resources we have right now, like we like to say on the Name Church of the Game, us podcast. That's right. So who do we have with us today? Well, today we have my friend, Freddie T. And Freddie T and I have been friends probably like 20 years at least. And Freddie currently pastors Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. And uh, I've known Freddie for a long time. When I met Freddie, he was helping to plant a church in a neighborhood in New York City. And we got to be friends that way. And then, you know, God's just taken him some different places and he's done some different things. And now he's planting this church in Clarksville, which I like Clarksville a lot because so Freddie, you know, I've talked about my dad went to college there. Yes. Football legend. He's a football <laughs> legend. That's right. For the Austin Peay State University governors. And uh, he played back in the 60s. So Clarksville is near and dear to his heart for sure. So uh, Freddie, why don't you just kind of introduce ourselves? Tell us about your family. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a pastor and a leader, and then talk about the church where you're serving right now. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a joy to be on with you guys today. Love your podcast and Jimmy, your leadership and ministry and Leslie. We always hear amazing. We know you're the secret sauce behind it all. So, um, <laughs> a lot of truth. Uh, anyways, yeah, I was born in Clarksville, Tennessee, and I sat on the same pew at First Baptist Church downtown Clarksville with my now wife, Susan, and I was always four years older. So it was never really an option until college age, but we got married in uh, 2004 and God has blessed us with four amazing kids, ages 15, twins that are 13. And then Parker, my mini me, he turns 10 this weekend. And you know, my youth pastor asked me to preach when I was 16. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I'm pretty sure he and my dad both wrote the sermon. And I got up and delivered it. And all the old, <laughs> la- all the old ladies came up afterwards saying, you're going to be a preacher, pastor. And I, I was pretty confident I'd be a baseball coach or something like that. But the Lord knew. And so the summer before my freshman year in college said yes to a call to ministry. And even then didn't know what all that entailed. But, you know, day at a time, just kept putting one foot in front of the other with the Lord walking with him. And Went to UT Martin, played a little baseball there, but the Lord led me to hang up the cleats middle of the way through my eligibility. Hardest thing I ever did, but the opportunities for ministry, the floodgates just opened up when I stepped away from baseball. And when Susan and I got married, she was serving with the North American Mission Board in New Brunswick, New Jersey, a part of a program that your friend and my friend Aaron co-designed called the Leadership Journey. And Aaron had been Susan's college pastor at Bel Air Baptist Church. That was the connection. In Murfreesboro. And yeah, that's right. That's right. And so some things went down where her roommate got sent home. And I was at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky on the phone with her one night. And I was like, you need a roommate. Anyways, the next day I was on the phone with, 
the next day I was on the phone with Aaron and just asked if we could get married during her year commitment. And he said, you're adults, you can do whatever you want to do. So they graciously allowed her to fly home, you know, once a month to plan the wedding. We got married and I joined her in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and did a 13 week church planting internship. And that's when I was really digging my teeth into church planting. That's when I was really, ex- I was exposed to New York City for the first time. I, I would take the train into the city and work with Aaron and the team with Nam there in the city. So when she wrapped up her year commitment, my 13 week commitment ended. And we moved back to Louisville for me to finish seminary, but we were sold on the strategic nature of New York City and God's global purposes. And shortly after moving back to Louisville, we ended up being asked to preach at First Baptist, my home church. Mm -hmm. We'd drive from Louisville to Clarksville every weekend and back. And it was crazy. You'll do crazy things when you're young. And, you know, it's like to get to preach to the people that taught me how to walk with Jesus. I'm like, yes, when, where you tell me. And so that was a massive privilege. But, man, we couldn't shake New York. And, you know, three years later, I'm on the phone with Aaron. And by this time, he's launched Gallery Church in Manhattan and they're needing to grow their team. And he said, you know, if we can figure out a way to get you here, we need you. Let's go. And so next thing you know, we sensed a call to move to New York. The crazy thing, and my wife is my hero. We had an almost two-year-old when we moved and she was pregnant with twins. Mm. And so she... She gave birth to the twins a month after we moved to Manhattan. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, man. It's it's crazy. So her experience in New York City was quite different than mine. I'm out conquering the world by day, and she's cooped up in a tiny little apartment, long winters. But she killed it. It was amazing. We got pregnant with our fourth kid there, and we gave it another year with four kids in the city. And and that was all she wrote. But I tell you, (laughs) we got to see God do some really special things. Loved how Aaron influenced my life there. Loved just and just learning so much about planting the gospel in neighborhoods and what cities needed and and all of that. And so, anyways, after New York, I took a big deep breath. We landed in Clarksville for a few months and then ended up pastoring a church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Loved those people dearly, but I think that experience for me crystallized in my heart. I really need to be planting again. And so the story of the church we're planting now is really amazing. There were four pastors that have been praying for two years about their common burden to see a new church planted in the Sango area of Clarksville. And, you know, like oftentimes a church planter will come to town and other pastors are like, what are you doing on our turf? You know, like, well, these guys were praying, you know, and saying, God, send us a planter. And I was like the third guy they had talked to. The other two guys didn't develop, you know, nothing developed, but in 2017, flew in from Phoenix to Nashville, met with these guys, and almost immediately had a sense that we needed to plant real life. So this September will be four years. Public great great timing, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's right. So uh, it'll be four years this September of public services and absolutely having the time of our lives. So what was that like? You're trying to plant a church in this neighborhood. You're invited and wanted by these pastors, but you do it. And like, just as you're getting off the ground, I mean, COVID, and it didn't just hit the world. It hit you. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. You know, we adjusted like everybody else did. We weren't online at all. So we scrambled to get online. We did the parking lot thing, you know, and that was a lot of fun. But then June came and it started getting hot and kids are crawling on their laps of their moms in the car, you know, so that wasn't sustainable. And and finally, we, we secured a place and then, you know, about... 10 months later of worshiping socially distanced and all that, you know, all the stuff, 
I got COVID and got COVID pneumonia, was hospitalized for 14 days and in ICU for six. And it was a real defining moment for our church in that, like, I'm totally, you know, knocked out of commission. And, you know, we're a new church. And there was one guy on our team, kind of one of our first core members that said, when do we go from being a mission to a church? And and in his mind, he answered the question, when Freddie can be removed and the church can flourish, you know, it just didn't, that's just the way he answered the question. And so for him, he just said, you know, God used my illness in a massive way to show him, hey, we're a church, <laughs> you know, because things just continued to march on while I was in the hospital. And so glory to God, I'm here. You guys were praying for me. People all over the place were cheering for me. And it was a sobering experience to say the least. Yeah. Well, you've had so many experiences, Freddie T, and planted churches in New York City and pastored in Phoenix and planting in Clarksville. So I'm just curious how you see this concept of neighborhood church. Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, the neighborhood church, the first word that comes to my mind when I hear neighborhood church is Jesus is, you know, giving us the second greatest commandment. Mm. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we know and understand that that doesn't necessarily mean your next door neighbor, but that's a pretty good place to start, right? Yeah. And so depending upon the kind of town that you're in, thinking about planting the gospel and planting a church in a neighborhood with a heart for the neighborhood, I think is a really strategic way to have a a church, to see a movement rather than a, a regional church where somebody's driving 45 minutes, you know, the practicality of them inviting their neighbor to come and drop their unbelieving neighbor at that mm. to come and drop 45 minutes to a church. It, you know, it doesn't really resonate. And, and the kind of impact that you can have incarnationally planting a church, you know, you've got the church gathered, but then the church scattered. Mm-hmm. So if you're planting a neighborhood church, when your people scatter, they they scatter in the neighborhood that your church gathers in, among the people that your church is seeking to reach. For us, the way that translated into the life of our church, you know, we had the great privilege of having all this local support. So these pastors would encourage us to come and cast vision in their church, and they encourage their people to come with us. So we had a team of about 60 people, and we gathered them on Sunday nights before we ever launched public services. And my goal was to train them to live and think like missionaries, to kind of deprogram them from an overprogrammed church mentality. And so in that process, and <laughs> we began to use this language before the SBC started their Who's Your One initiative. <laughs> we were using this language of Who's Your Three. You know, so you can imagine when the SBC started using the who's your one. I was like, you know, but we uh, basically overachievers. That's what I think you are. Well, whatever, you know, anyways, we would have everybody on our core team sketch out what we called their mission map. And in the mission map, they were to draw their neighborhood. They were to draw a physical depiction of their workplace. And then they were to sketch out what we called their third place. Starbucks coined that phrase years ago, third place. It's It's where you go when you're not at work, you're not at home. So it might be the gym, it might be the coffee shop, you know. For me, it's the Little League, having boys in baseball, you know. And so if somebody has a healthy mission map, there might be 30 people in that. So if you try to live out the second greatest commandment, love your neighbors yourself among 30 people, you're going to be broke by Thursday, right? Right. (laughs) You know, and you're going to be tapped out in your emotional capacity. Nobody's got the capacity to love 30 people well. So we said, well, how do we get that down to three? So again, we look to Jesus and Jesus gives that principle of receptivity. He sends the disciples out. He says, if they welcome you in, go and stay a while. If they don't, you guys don't dust off your feet and carry on, right? 
Well, Jesus understood the urgency of his own mission. So we use that. We encourage folks that look at this list of 30 people that God's put in front of you in your neighborhood, your work, in your third place. And where do you see the most relational receptivity or spiritual receptivity? And then we said, like, free yourself from that crazy pressure of witnessing to every living, breathing thing, and then love those three people well, intentionally, consistently over time. And we just said, you know, if if you do this, you're going to have somebody sitting across the table over coffee going, why are you loving me this way? My family doesn't even love me this way, you know? So for us, that was the real, like literally neighborhood church. We literally had the core team people sketch out their neighborhood, sketch out their workplace, sketch out this place where they live their life, and then identify these people that God's put right in front of them. And then just say, don't feel like you got to win the world. Just invest in these few people and watch what God does. That's good. So that's for us, as we think about neighborhood church, that's the real kind of, you know, tip of the spear, so to speak, and how we live that out. Well, that's so powerful. And I think so many of us as pastors could learn from that because sometimes when you get a church going, the church becomes like a beast and (laughs) you spend all of your time trying to feed the beast, right? You've got to have enough volunteers and you got to raise enough money and you got to have enough leaders and then you got to meet with the deacons and you got to have the business meeting. You got to get the budget ready, but then you're supposed to also be discipling everybody and having classes and teaching really good. And it's amazing the way that pastors feel pressure to do everything but be a great missionary to your neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. You know, I don't know what inspired this for us, but before we ever planted the church, we just said, we want to be present in the neighborhood. And so we had a couple of family fun days out in front of the school that we were going to launch services in. It's just a big block party with no strings attached. Man, people loved it, you know, and it's like it was time to shut down and the kids were still going down the, you know, the water slides, you know, and, you know, people were scrounging up the hot dogs, you know, and but just to have a presence in the neighborhood, you know, one of the things we're going to do this fall is serve in the local high school, kind of run the concession stand. Mm. And so like all of our people will have our church t-shirts on, we'll have our church signs out, but it's, you know, it's kind of a no brainer to, you know, like have a presence in your neighborhood serving and loving. And, you know, they have such a hard time getting people to work the concession stand and we're going to show up ready to go. And, you know, so simple ways of both equipping your people to think who's God putting in front of you. And then how can we as a church come together to serve the neighborhood. You know, I mean, we've got people that drive a distance that come to our church, but anytime anybody says to me, we want to go visit this church that's like five minutes from our house and we're driving 35 minutes right now. I mean, I'm usually like, what took you so long? You know, like that's a great idea and you need to do that. But Jimmy, probably the biggest real life aha that I had in this whole neighborhood church concept, Leslie, you'll appreciate this. When we were in New York, Central Park stopped doing their Easter egg hunt. Mm. So you could just imagine what kind of Easter egg hunt does Central Park put on? Well, it's the mother of all Easter egg hunts. (laughs) So Aaron Coe, being the amazing leader that he is, he said, let's just step in and take over the Easter egg hunt. You know, so like our little church of a hundreds, like we're going to do this Easter egg hunt for thousands, all five boroughs in New York City. And it was as crazy as it sounds. It took every... (laughs) It took every person in our church and there were like 6,000 people that came through this Easter egg hunt. Okay. So you sit back and you watch this thing and you're like, whoa, what an event, right? 
Well, meanwhile, J.R. Vassar, planting Apostles Church on the other side of the island of Manhattan, he's doing a tiny little neighborhood Easter egg hunt. You know, nothing impressive about it, really small, you know, in their neighborhood. And so for us, it was amazing activating our whole church to put on a really impressive event. But the reality is, is we made no relational inroads because all of our people were trying to put on this event. Mm-hmm. You know, meanwhile, JR's over putting on a much less impressive event, but one that's neighborhood focused, relationally driven, and they made a you know a lot more effective inroads. So for me, that's kind of like the picture, you know, of the aha moment of me going, okay, what we did was a lot harder and a lot less effective. And what he just did was a lot more simple and a lot more effective. So there you go. Take that one and Okay, that is a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous illustration mm-hmm. because I think so many of us as you know, as pastors, we wanna we wanna go big, we wanna make a splash, we wanna make a difference. And there's nothing wrong with that because sometimes God you and I'm sure God used, you know, Gallery Church doing that. But I think you're right in terms of you know, JR didn't kill his whole church, wear them all out for the next month, be exhausted. And JR is probably just standing out there in a relaxed way, talking to the people in his neighborhood or coming to his neighborhood. And that's a really great picture, I think. And so really what you're talking about is contextualization. And I think one of the great things that the neighborhood church does, it lets you contextualize ministry to the place where God has you planted. I wonder if you'd speak to that because when you think about where you have served, you know, you grew up in Clarksville, you serve in New York City, then you serve in Scottsdale, and now you're planting back in Clark. I mean, that is as varied context as I can think of. Yeah. You know, one of the phrases that Aaron taught me when I was serving with him in New York was with this concept that, you know, the further away you conduct your ministry from your culture of origin, the more difficult and slower it's going to be. You know, and so all of my ministry instincts were shaped right here in the town that I'm planting in. And so it's almost like everything comes instinctual. I don't really even have to think about it that much where when I was in New York and when I was in Phoenix, a whole different beast. I remember one of the first sermons I preached in New York City the application that I gave them was like to go out to, I was preaching on like the uh, kingdom citizenship, right? And so the application was to go out to Ellis Island and look at all these people that longed to be citizens of the United States. You know, look at all these people that came in from other countries and well, no New Yorker is ever going to go out to Ellis Island. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, like they don't the do that. You do know? that. <laughs> That's right. And I'm like, you know, I don't have a clue of what I'm saying, you know? And so you know, that idea of contextualization is is you really have to understand the values, the mindset, the rhythms of the people. You have to understand what are their core idols? What are their core objections to the gospel? You know, so that you can serve the community and convey the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. So it's a, <laughs> it's a real joy to be in the community that I grew up in because that comes with much greater ease than it did in New York or, you know, or in Phoenix. It's so funny, you know, <laughs> you know, so the, the church in Scottsdale, they didn't, I, mean, I don't know that they had a, they knew I was coming from New York City, right? You know, they hear New York City and they think like New York City politics. So literally in the search process, they took me to an indoor gun range <laughs> to make sure I was going to be okay with their guns. You know, <laughs> like, it's like, okay, if he's not going to be okay with this, he can't be our pastor, you know, <laughs> but that's like, 
I mean, that was real for them. You know, it's like, you know, what this guy thinks about guns is going to matter. And he's coming from New York. So he probably thinks differently about guns. And I don't so know. So Leslie Bennett was on the search committee that hired me here. And so I remember when they hosted Kristen and me, when we came for our visit, you guys didn't take us to a gun range. No, we didn't. We weren't th- we weren't thinking about what's your stance on guns. No, he took us to a restaurant and they found out what my stance was on steak, which is strong. But uh, anyways, that is such a great picture, Freddie. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's good. Yeah. As you think about the different contexts that you've been in, are there any sort of plumb lines or things that you could tell pastors as they think about their context and reaching their neighborhood, you know, through the lessons that you've learned either you know, positive examples or maybe negative examples about how they could begin to make inroads if they've kind of lost the vision for their neighborhood? How do they regain that vision? Yeah, I love that question. You know, I think especially if you're new to a neighborhood, new to a church, new to a town, you've got to posture yourself as a learner. You've got to let go of your assumptions, you know, like really kind of assume nothing if you're in a new environment and really, really just posture your heart as a learner and seek to, you know, seek to discover what are these people fired up about? What are they sad about? What do they care about? You know, what motivates them? What are their stresses? What are their burdens? Some churches will do a survey. We did this in New York, but where you'll survey the neighborhood and actually ask people, what do you perceive as the greatest need in our community? What do you perceive as the greatest need? And, you know, and so you may think you know what the greatest need is, But getting to hear from the actual people that live in the neighborhood is going to give you their heartbeat on what what matters to them, you know, because, you know, any pastor that's worth his salt is going to work hard. Right. Mm -hmm. But what's more discouraging than working really hard in the wrong things? And so you've got to learn what matters to a community. And that's not easy to do. I don't know that I have like here's the silver bullet on how you do it. But I think if you posture yourself in that way, listen, you know, and, you know, ask, you know, go to the leaders in the community, ask them what's the greatest challenge, what's the greatest burdens, go to the principals, you know, every principal of every school knows what's going on in the families in their represented in their schools. And so asking those principals, you know, what are the challenges the families are facing? Yeah. So maybe that's helpful, Leslie. It's a good question. I think that's fantastic. Hey, Freddie, one of the challenges I think, you know, pastoring is hard, planting is hard, doing neighborhood ministry. It's just not for wimps. It's not easy. And so I wonder, you know, how do you stay motivated to keep going after that neighborhood? So what, in other words, what is your why? Why are you going to give like this season of your life as a missionary to this neighborhood? How do you get fired up to do it? Yeah. The principle of ministry out of the overflow is really important to us. Man, you can dry up really, really quickly. I I like to say that Jesus doesn't want anybody to burn out, but he wants us all to be burned up, right? That's not original to me. I've heard some good preacher, probably you, Jimmy, say that. I don't know. But I tell our people, like, you're not going to burn out by serving Jesus too much. You're just going to burn out by serving Jesus in a way that doesn't, like, match your time with him, you know? And so if you get that out of whack, anybody will burn out quick, you know? So abiding in the Lord, remaining close to the Lord, because it's the heart of the father that pursues people, right? He's the one that leaves the 99 to go after the one. And so if we're walking with the Lord and aligning our heart with the Lord's heart, we're always going to be fired up for 
with a missionary heart because God's a missionary God, you know, I mean, he's, he's the one that's pursued us in his crazy love. And he's the one that, you know, that said, I'm going to bless every nation in the, you know, in the world, you know, so, you know, it's easy for us to get fired up and want to do something for God. But I think if we capture the concept of let's do it with God Hmm. rather than for him, and let's just stay really close to him and move in concert with the spirit, so much easier said than done, but it really is prioritizing time with God, listening to him, seeking him personally. So ministry out of the overflow, man, it's a goal. I get out of whack like everybody else does, but that's what we always seek to come back to is ministry out of the overflow. Well, Freddie, I think this is so tremendous. Thank you for having this conversation with us. We're tremendous admirers of you here at Family Church. You mean a lot to us. Your friendship does. And so we're very grateful. And I want to say to all of our listeners, too, thank you for listening today. And if you like what you heard today and you like these kinds of ideas and strategies, I hope you'll join us at our Church for the Rest of Us conference, March the 2nd, 2023. It's going to be right here in South Florida at Family Church downtown. Early registration is open right now at churchfortherestofus.com. We'd also love it if you'd consider sharing this podcast with a friend or if you would take the trouble. I know it's a kind of a pain in the neck, but if you would <laughs> leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform and help other people find our podcast, which is what we want. Anyhow, Freddie T, thank you for joining us. I'm signing off for Freddie T. Wyatt. This is Jimmy Scroggins, also Leslie Bennett, Church for the Rest of Us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog or follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins. We want to connect with you and learn from you because we're in this together. We're all learning from each other. We are church for the rest of us.